You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. What's up, everybody? How we doing? What's up? What's up? Oh, okay, you got a little energy, got some coffee or some sleep, one of them, maybe both. <laughs> My name is Barnabas, one of the pastors here. You probably noticed I'm not Morgan. Pastor Morgan is out vacation with family, so getting some much-needed rest. Be praying for him as he returns this coming week. So if I say something you don't like, you can email him when he gets back. <laughs> So you're stuck with me. Special shout out to my lovely wife who actually made it on time today for service. Hallelujah. I, I, I use the word on time loosely. That means anytime before the message starts. I love you, baby. I love you, baby. You know I love you. Right here, right here. If you've tracked with us over the last several weeks, then you are aware that we're in a, a series called Not Alone. And today I've been asked to conclude our series by a- answering a very important question. And this question is, what is God's greatest weapon to combat the seemingly endless battle against loneliness? And before we answer that question, I'll I'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, I just pray that it wouldn't be I who speaks today, it would be you through me. Father, I just want to be your vessel for good use. I pray, Father, that whatever you desire to speak to your people today, your words will be on my lips. I pray that whatever transformation, whatever healing, whatever needs to take place in this space, that God, you would do it. We thank you. We invite you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, we're going to take a look at a familiar passage of Scripture that has been often used in a broad way with a hope of kind of applying it more specifically to us. And so um, uh, we're going to start with uh, John 13. I'm jumping around a little bit. There's a few Scriptures, but the kind of home base is verses 12 through 17, and I'll read them for us. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now let's set the stage for what's happening in this moment. So here is Jesus sitting with his his 12 disciples and they're sitting down for a meal together, but not just any meal. It's actually Jesus's last meal. The gospels tell us that it's his final meal before he is to be arrested, brutally beaten, and crucified. What's taking place in this moment is commonly known as the Last Supper. And, and there is Jesus surrounded by these men who are, who are more than just his followers, more than just servants. These are his friends. They're like family. And right in the middle of this meal, Jesus rises from the, the table. He takes off his outer garment. He begins to fill this, this, this basin with water. And he, to the, the disciples' astonishment, he begins to wash their feet one by one. So again, I pose the question, What is God's greatest weapon to combat the seemingly endless battle against loneliness? I'll begin our time together by answering this question and hopefully spend the rest of our time together unpacking what this looks like for our lives. The simple answer is friendship. God uses friendship, but probably not in the way that that we may think. I remember 
reading a book a few years ago called Vital Friends. It talked about how a vital friend is somebody who, who measurably improves your life. What matters is not how many friends you have, but the quality of the ones you do have. And in this book, there are some results to a few studies that they did that I would like to share with you. The first one is that during our teenage years, we spend nearly one-third of our time with our friends. But for the rest of our lives, the average time spent with friends is less than 10%. In 2001 study, researchers at Duke University Medical Center explored the protective effect of friendships in a more depth study by studying patients with heart disease. They had already discovered that people with fewer than four friends were at a significant disadvantage. Over a four-year span, people in the isolated group, those with fewer than four friends, were more than twice as likely to die from heart disease. It doesn't stop there. Research also revealed how this shows up in marriages too. After all, I think we would all agree that at the, the foundation of a healthy marriage is a very strong friendship. Another study revealed that negativity in a marriage has been shown to cause health problems. In fact, a 2005 study revealed how marital strife can delay the healing of physical wounds. To study the impact of arguments and stress on marriage couples, a, a group of Ohio State researchers recruited 42 couples, admitted them to a hospital, created eight small blisters on their arms, and then placed devices over the wounds that measured the healing. The couples also completed questionnaires and provided blood samples for analysis. According to Professor Jan Kaiko Glacier, one of the lead investigators, wounds on the hostile couples healed at only 60% of the rate of couples considered to have low levels of hostility. So having an unhappy marriage could nearly double the time it takes for you to heal from an injury. In addition, blood samples for more hostile couples contain 1.5 times the level of interleukin-6 compared to the less hostile groups or couples samples. Sustained heightened levels of this protein in the bloodstream have been linked to increased risk for cardiovascular disease osteoporosis, arthritis, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, and certain cancers among other illnesses, according to the researchers. It appears that having a positive marriage profoundly influences our short-term and long-term physical health, from healing a blister to warding off cancer. That's the power of friendship. The title of today's message is, Who's In It With You? And there are four things I'd like to share with you today, and those things are the role of friendship, the presence of pride, the beauty of betrayal, and the healing power of Jesus. So let's dive right into the, to the role of friendship. We'll start by reading John 15, verses 13 through 15. It says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for servant does not understand what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, because everything I have learned from my Father, I've made known to you. John 13 says this, a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You'll notice that both passages use the word love, and in both cases, the word fundamentally means the same thing, but used in slightly different ways. The word love in, in, in John 15 is a noun. It's talking about a quality or attribute that we're called to possess. 
The word love in John 13 is a verb. It's action-oriented. It's less about referring to something we possess and rather by something that's lived out. Both words refer to loving unconditionally and sacrificially the way that God does. God has designed friendship to be channels or conduits for this kind of love. At the very heart of the gospel is God's rescue mission to restore broken relationships. Our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is Savior. But interestingly enough, in his own words, he refers to us as friends. I don't know about you, but growing up, I looked at God as as more of a distant authority in my life. This figure that that resembled more of a parole officer than a close friend. He was someone I, I really didn't have access to and who wasn't really interested in my life and my experiences. To me, this, that he was the creator of this ridiculous set of rules that honestly nobody ever could follow because it was impossible in the first place. And it was just like this really bad joke. I spent a good bit of my childhood and adolescence isolated and alone. No real friends, a couple here and there, but nothing long-lasting. To this day, I remember times when I would walk around my neighborhood all by myself, often feeling out of place and like I didn't belong. There were older guys in my neighborhood who would regularly smoke weed and I found myself sitting on a couch in their living room while they were getting high wondering, what am I even doing here? I had no desire to to join in, but somehow the, the secondhand smoke seemed like a more attractive alternative than loneliness. Middle school and high school weren't much different. They were marked with feelings of inadequacy and rejection. The closest friend I had in high school didn't come into my senior year, and even he later confessed that said it began based on a bet that turned me bad. Fast forward to my freshman year in college where I vowed that I would no longer be the silent nerd. I was going to recreate this, this new image, be more outgoing, have a fresh start, get a new group of friends. I went to all the parties began to make a name for myself. And the best part of it, I was hours away from home so I could do whatever I wanted. I would love to tell you that the feelings of inadequacy and loneliness just magically went away, but they didn't. I could be in a room full of people and still feel completely alone. Turn the page to my sophomore year in college when someone shared the gospel with me. And after surrendering my life to Jesus, I began to experience an intimacy with God I never knew I needed. God began to fill me with himself. I imagine Jesus and his time on earth and how he must have felt constantly being filled with the presence of his father. He felt it. People he encountered in his earthly ministry felt it. And I'm certain the disciples felt it too. This is important because Jesus receiving his identity preceded him fulfilling his calling. And in the middle of a a meal that we witness in John 13, as he rose from the table, even the disciples sitting around him probably could feel his confidence and his assurance radiating from within him. In this moment, Jesus does something that takes them by surprise. He doesn't call down angels from heaven to destroy the Roman Empire with a single word. He doesn't curse Caesar in hopes that he shrivel up like the fig tree He begins to wash their feet. Simply put, 
Jesus was secure in who he was. He had nothing to prove and this flawless security in his identity allowed him to not only be Lord and Savior, it allowed him to be the perfect friend. With this in mind, it's important for us to understand why friendships exist. Friendships aren't created to define us, they exist to refine us. The word refine means to free from impurities or unwanted material. Another definition is, is to improve or perfect by pruning or polishing. Some of you already want a refund. You're like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for that. I don't want none of that, right? But, but God didn't create friendships solely for our comfort and our mental health, even though those are often the byproduct of friendship. The primary role of our friendships is the, to, to bring us closer to God and make us more like Jesus. The sacrificial love found in the relationship with God the Father, Jesus, his Son, and the Holy Spirit is the same love that should be reflected in all of our relationships. As imperfect beings, God often uses the crucible of relationships to work out sin out of our lives and holiness into our hearts. Things begin to go wrong when we try to receive something from friendships that only God can provide. Our salvation, identity, fulfillment, and joy are only things that he can give us. To expect that from an earthly relationship is to put a weight that no human can bear. In other words, this, things begin to go awry when we make friendships all about us. We can't be focused on ourselves and others at the same time. We soon discover that these earthly relationships themselves aren't the source of the, of the pruning and the perfecting, but rather the vehicle God often uses to accomplish his perfect will in our lives. But when fear and insecurity sit on the throne of our hearts, it prevents us from pouring ourselves out in the way that God's called us to. And we find ourselves being distracted by what people think instead of directed about what God says about us. Jesus is saying to us the same thing he said to his disciples. On that night, love one another as I've loved you. As followers of Jesus, our lives should be marked by loving generosity. I truly believe that that begins in our friendships and overflows into the surrounding world. But often it's easier said than done, isn't it? There are things that get in the way of us doing what God has called us to do in this area of our lives. A big one is the presence of pride. John 13 says this, it says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what am I, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you will have no share with me. Now we all know that Peter's that guy you never want to put on speakerphone. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like casting lots, slot machine, you pull a lever and you just see what happens. <laughs> but before we, we kind of judge Peter right. and label him as being overly impulsive, let's try to understand his context. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, the washing of the feet was very common. Something that you would do when someone was entering into your home. And it was, it was an element of hospitality, especially in countries where people would travel a lot on foot. Maybe wearing sandals, places that were dusty. And, and so either water was provided for the guests to wash their own feet or servant or the lowliest person of the household would be the one who does it. So Peter is simply outwardly displaying what likely the other disciples are feeling inwardly. 
this was something they weren't accustomed to. It, in, in their culture, a superior rabbi washing the feet of his disciples, that didn't happen. It was unheard of. But here, their teacher, the son of God, the king of kings, the creator of the universe, wrapped in flesh, stooping down to wash their feet. If anything, they should be washing his feet, right? This act not only dis- demonstrates God's willingness to perform the most menial tasks for his friends, but it also serves as an example of what we should be doing for one another. Yeah. So what does this mean for us today? This isn't the same as asking to take someone's coat when they come to your home or asking if they would like a glass of water. I think there's a few simple questions we can ask to identify what the equivalent of washing feet is like today. Is it practical? Is it personal? Is it purposeful? There wasn't anything extravagant about what Jesus did. It was very practical. His disciples' feet were dirty. He washed them. Pretty straightforward. Yet, it's something he did for them. He didn't outsource this. He didn't buy a gift card to a, to a beauty place. <laughs> he didn't pay anybody to do it. Right? No day spot for you. It was personal. He did it. His own hands. That's not all. It was done with purpose. It demonstrated his heart posture towards them while simultaneously serving as an illustration of what he was asking them to do for others. Given the context, the point in history, the country they live, what he did and who he did it for all had powerful meaning. Jesus didn't allow his position or even his deity to stop him from serving his friends. My wife and I have been married for over 11 years. And on our wedding day, she was getting ready, had all of her bridesmaids around her. She gets on her wedding dress looking all fine. <laughs> she was almost ready. And you know what happened? She had to go pee. <laughs> yep, yep. She told me I could, she told me I could, I could tell y'all that. Just <laughs> he gonna be on the couch later. No, no, we, we talk, we good, we good. And so... <laughs> I don't, I don't, have you ever tried to use the bathroom in the wedding dress? Like, I don't even, I don't want no part of that. Anyway. <laughs> so, my, you know, my wife, a little itty bitty thing, you know, is she, don't, she don't have long arms. It's, I mean, think of like a T-Rex trying to do a pull-up. I mean, you trying, like, it's just not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. Like, like see, she needed help. She needed help, right? But what's, what's awesome is that she wasn't alone. She was surrounded by, by friends, and, and they, they held her. They helped her. Somebody had to wipe. We're not gonna talk about Bruno though. And honestly, let's be honest. Now they could have responded differently. They're gonna be like, girl, you gotta get out this dress, go to the bathroom, come back, we're gonna help you get in this thing. Mm-mm, no. No. But they served her in a way that was practical and very personal. It served a purpose that we both remember even to this day. <laughs> y'all can't focus on the rest of the message. Y'all, y'all, y'all thinking about wedding dresses and bathroom. Pray for them, Lord. Pray for them. <laughs> there are many things that get in the way of us serving like Jesus did. But the one I want to mention to you in particular is pride. But, but I'm not talking about the, the just being boastful or, or arrogant. I'm referring to the kind of pride that's a little bit more subtle, a little more difficult to detect. 
The simplest way to define pride is elevating our will above God's will. At times we get so caught up in how we feel and what we want and its, its importance gets elevated about what, above what God wants. We can even do good things for the wrong reasons. It's crazy how we can take the purest of instruction like washing each other's feet and somehow twist it to being about us. One temptation is the desire to always be the one meeting a need and never being the one having a need. We can make the mistake of believing that being self-sufficient somehow makes us stronger or more holy. But you know what it really makes us? Alone. That's true. Alone. The self-inflicted prison of performance is a lonely place to be. Maybe it's rooted in fear, fear of rejection, fear of feeling like a failure or like a burden. I've been there. I've been there. Another temptation is believing that our role, our status, or our, our, our situation entitles us to be the one always being served, but never pausing to think about how we can serve those around us. Both are rooting and preferring our will above God's. What this means is that there may be times in our friendships where they may seem somewhat unbalanced. Instances where we feel more committed to people than they are to us. Now this can be tricky. I'm not suggesting that we allow people to take advantage of us or to remain in an abusive relationship. But what I am saying is that there might be situations or seasons where we feel like we're pouring ourselves out and it's not necessarily being reciprocated. That's good. Or even like we're receiving a lot of help, but we're not in a position to help other people. Yeah. This is okay, because remember, we're not the source. That's right. God is. We are mere vessels for his good use, even in our friendships. This may feel difficult and uncomfortable at times, but God is calling us to have the same heart posture that Jesus did when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked that this cup would pass from him. He was like, I don't, I don't want to go to the cross. It's not my preference to, to die. But he ended that prayer with, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. Some of us, maybe we want the cup of need to pass from us. Maybe we want the cup of sacrificially pouring ourselves out to pass from us. Jesus elevated his father's will above his own. Even to the point of death. My hope is that by walking in the same confidence and humility that Jesus did, we can be conduits of God's love while simultaneously making space for others to be the same for us. But it's not just pride that gets in the way, is it? I'd like to take a moment to touch on the beauty of betrayal. Verse 21 in John 13 says this, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Of course, you know the story Jesus is referring to Judas earlier in the passage. It states that the devil had already put it in his heart to betray Jesus. What blows my mind is that Jesus knew all along. And it's crazy to me, but at least for a period of time, Jesus was like the only person that knew. Nobody else did. And we get the inside scoop like an audience watching a movie, kind of seen behind the scenes. But to everybody else, Judas was one of the homies, right? He lived with Jesus and the other disciples. He traveled on missionary journeys with them, talked about the kingdom of God, ate with them. He's part of the family. 
You don't usually use a word like betrayal for somebody who isn't close to you. This is a term that's typically reserved for someone who knows you intimately. Now I try to put myself in Jesus' shoes. I'm going to be honest with you. If I'm the, the Lord and I knew Judas was going to set me up, first of all, I'm not washing his dirty, stanky feet. I'm not going to do it. Wash your own feet. Here's the bottle. Here's the water. But on another letter, if you're going to set me up to be crucified, I mean, 30 pieces of silver? I mean, I'm the Messiah, right? I'm at least worth a cool 300. Like, like holler at me, right? Now, see, that's why I can't be God. I don't know how to act. God got to pray for me. But all joking aside, we learn a very important lesson from Jesus. There will likely be a moment in life where someone close to you will fail you or desert you during your greatest time of need. We see extreme examples of this all throughout Scripture. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they didn't like his dreams and the preferential treatment of their, their father. Jacob was promised by his uncle, beautiful younger daughter. I'm not saying the older one wasn't beautiful. I'm just saying he didn't get what he asked for. His uncle said, ah, psych, just playing, giving you something else. Now, there's all kind of examples throughout Scripture. It's like a soap opera, right? But allow me to provide a couple of definitions of betrayal. One is to deliver up one to custody, to be judged, condemned, punished, scourged, tormented, put to death. The other one is a little bit more simple, to give into the hands of another. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and make the assumption that no one listening has ever been crucified. I think that's a fair assumption. But, but that doesn't mean that you haven't experienced some type of betrayal, whether you acknowledge it or realize it or not. Some of you have heard bits and pieces of my story about my relationship with my dad. I've previously spoken about my father through the, through the lenses of a fractured faith and an unreached potential. The best description of, of, of his involvement in my life is physically present, but spiritually and emotionally absent. But as I began to process and pray for this message, I felt the Lord probing me to speak candidly about another side of it, the side of betrayal. My father died tragically over a decade ago, and this is in no way intended to dishonor his memory or any good that came from his life. I believe he loved my mother and all three of his sons, myself included. But it doesn't erase the reality that in many ways, my dad abdicated his role as a father. And I found myself in many ways given over into the hands of the world to be molded and discipled. Granted, some of this was due to ignorance, mental illness, but some of it was a choice. The kids I grew up with in my school taught me more about sex than he did. The only advice he gave me was, be sure to try before you get married. Growing up in neighborhoods where gang violence and drug use was the norm, I found myself being sent on a journey of manhood without a guide. My dad was God's delegated priest and official to help walk me through the most difficult moments of my life. But for most of it, I felt abandoned and alone. As a father now, both a son and a daughter, I feel the weight and significance of this more than I ever have. Jesus showed us something that is crucial for our faith. When we choose the pleasure of love, we also inherently choose the possibility of pain. If anyone were to tell me that they've never been hurt, I'd probably respond, you probably have never loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You can't experience pleasure without being vulnerable. When you give love, you in a lot of ways give away power. Is this beginning to sound familiar? God gave away his power by coming from heaven to earth, wrapped in human flesh, being raised by his own creation. He gave away power when he surrendered to the Roman guards in the garden. He gave away power when he carried the very cross he was going to be nailed to. He gave away power and access to Judas and trusted them with their finances and ministry opportunities, even though he knew he was going to betray him. Is God asking us to purposely remain in toxic relationships that pull us away from his presence and his purpose in our lives? Not at all. But I do think Jesus is showing us what it looks like to forgive. Some of you are here today with wounds from the past that have been caused. And what has resulted in is you've made these vows. These vows that you will never be vulnerable again. These vows that you will never give anybody ever power over you ever again. But you know what vow that really is? You're really making a vow to refuse to love the way Jesus did and still loves today. I want to encourage you with something. The beauty of betrayal is that it is often the most fertile soil in which forgiveness can grow. The beauty of betrayal yeah. is that it's often the most fertile soil in which forgiveness can grow. This brings me to my final point. The healing power of Jesus. One of the most powerful displays of human sacrifice and love is forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we cancel their debt. Debt isn't just a thing that goes away magically. Someone has to pay it. When someone betrays you or causes you pain, it costs you something. And and it costs you to no longer hold them accountable for what they owe. It's almost like something on the inside of you has to die in order for the relationship to live. Does it sound familiar? Isn't that what Jesus did hours after the last meal with his disciples? Laid down his own life when it was us who deserved death? As we follow him, he asked us to do the same thing. And one of the most transformative ways we can wash the feet of others is through forgiveness. That's not just for others, is it? It's for us. One of the greatest gifts I gave to myself was the forgiveness of my father. It was the only thing to prevent the poisonous venom of hatred and bitterness from destroying every relationship I would ever have. What if your willingness to extend grace through forgiveness is the key to unlocking your healing? What if unforgiveness is the only thing standing in the way of someone you know coming to know Jesus or feeling the confidence that they can love and be loved again? When we look at tragic stories like the one of Judas, it can result in us viewing some of our relationship as kind of lost causes. If we're not careful, we can allow pain to uh, an offense to lead us into abandoning God's call to friendship. If it's hard, it must not be God, right? Do you see how the enemy wins if we adopt this type of thinking? If we run every time relationships get difficult, we will never walk in the type of community God has called us to. The truth is that relationships are costly and often very hard. But pain and difficulty aren't signals to exit, but often signs of growth. 
Again, I'm not saying that we should be doormats or let people take advantage of us, but I am saying that by God's grace, we can and should love the way Jesus did. I think of Peter. He abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour and even went as far as denying him three times. Now, how did Jesus respond to him? Did he quote Matthew 10, 33? If you deny me before people, I will deny you before my father. No, he didn't do that. Not at all. You know what he did? After his resurrection, Jesus made it a point to go visit his friend Peter for two reasons. He wanted to assure him that he was forgiven and remind him that he was called. That's it. You think that Jesus wasn't deeply affected by being abandoned and denied by one of his closest friends? To believe that would be to deny his humanity. Did it hurt? Yes. But he saw past the pain and recognized that their friendship was the foundation of something much greater. Yeah. Souls were to be won, churches were to be birthed because of their friendship. Some of you might be thinking, Pastor B, I'm good. I've got enough friends, everything is gravy. Or you might feel like your life's a mess, you're lonely and you don't even know how to trust. Maybe you feel like you like your life, you just don't have anybody to do that life with. Wherever you are, I'd like to encourage you to examine your friendships or the lack thereof, particularly how you personally invest in them. For those of you who feel alone and stuck, I'd like to encourage you to not be like Judas, not be like Judas. And I'm not talking about the betrayal part, I'm talking about the losing hope part. Yeah. He tried to undo something. The hope he had, he didn't even see it. He tried to give the money back. He wanted to undo, he wanted to fix what he'd broken. But that's not hope. That's self-sufficiency. That's not hope. Real hope would have been him being able to see that it wasn't in his ability to fix what he'd broken. It was trusting in Jesus that he could mend and heal all things. That's it. That's it. I'd like to ask you to have a moment like Peter did where Jesus assured him that he was forgiven and called. Before I pray for us, I'd like to ask you this week in your time with God to prayerfully consider a few questions. The first one is how can I be a better friend in my existing relationships? The second one is who have you brought in my life to be part of my journey that I haven't given proper attention to? And the last one, what are practical ways I can adapt my schedule and or routine to make space for cultivating godly friendships? I'll leave you with this last verse, Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It was never about their feet. It always was and will always be about our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and your truth. God, I pray that every single person on the sound of my voice would experience your healing touch. I pray, God, that you would renew things that have been broken and shattered People that have been scorned, hearts have been torn to pieces. I pray, God, this would be a healing place. I pray your spirit would come and make all things new. Those who think that they can never love again, they can never be vulnerable or real about what they're going through again, they have to put on a mask. I pray right now you'd make space for them. 
You make room for them. I pray you would give them courage. You would make them brave. You would help us, God, in those areas where we've been thinking all about our needs. I pray you would help us to think of ways that we could be a good friend. Maybe the key to the lack that we have is meeting a need for someone else. God, we ask you for your wisdom. We ask you for your touch. We ask you for your power. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.